that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We give you thanks and praise today, Father, that we're able to be here together, together in your name to learn about you and be closer to you and be closer to each other. And thank you for all our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we lift up to you today those who are um, getting ready to have surgery and that you be with them, be with the doctors that are caring for them, that those who might be going for tests or to the doctors and those who may have health issues, that you will bring them strength and comfort and that you will guide us as we go through our week to serve you in all that we do and to shine the light of your love to others. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 <coughs> some people who are back. Must be springtime. Uh, you come out of hibernation. And uh, it's good. Feel good energy in the room today. It's good to be with you. Uh, we have a lot to cover today. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've been sojourning for the last uh, four weeks or so in the book of Ephesians. And uh, we're going to be the end of chapter 4, first part of all of chapter 5, and a little bit of chapter 6. So uh, we've got a lot to cover. We're not going to try to cover everything, um, but we're trying to catch the big sweep of it. If you have not been with us, um, we've tried to remind ourselves that the first three chapters of Ephesians is, is Paul's... Um, combination of blessing and prayer and thanksgiving and announcement of what God's been doing that is so incredibly overwhelming that he can hardly bring it to speech, which is why we've used this <laughs> photograph up here during our study as a kind of uh, metaphor for, for how Paul feels about what God has done in Jesus, that you can't sort of bring it to speech all you can do is just sort of say that. Um, uh, it's just, I mean, how, how, how do you say that? I mean, how can you possibly bring that to speech? That was a, a beautiful night on Unaka Mountain uh, back a couple years ago when I was up on top of the mountain in the middle of the night. And so, um, yeah, you can't, you can't really bring that to speech. And, and Paul can't either. Uh, although he's trying, he feels like he has to. 
And so, um, but the first three chapters are all about what God has done. And what God has done is in Jesus has created a new humanity. That's no small thing. <laughs> I mean, think about that. In Jesus Christ, God has created a new humanity. And for what that meant in Paul's day, he announces that what God has done, he's broken down this ancient dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and out of two created one new humanity. And God has done that. God has done that in Jesus. And so the rest of the book is, how do you live that out if that's true? If, if what God has done is true, if God in Christ has created a new humanity, then how do you live that? And the rest of the book is about Paul trying to tell people who are going to receive this circular letter that we call the book of Ephesians, how are they to live this out? And so one of the metaphors that he uses, and we touched on last week, was this notion of laying aside the old humanity and putting on the new humanity, putting on Christ, he calls it. It's like a garment. And it uh, resonated with ancient baptismal practices where if you were a candidate for baptism, you were stripped of your old clothes, you were baptized in the altogether, and then you were clothed with a white robe, um, and you literally put on Christ was the idea. You're a new person. You're a new part of the new humanity. And in a good bit of the ancient church, you were given a new name. Okay, you were given a new name. And we talked about how most of us are pretty attached to our names. Right? I mean, that's who you are. You've been called that your whole life. And be given a new name was to remind you that you have a new identity now as part of this new humanity. And Paul goes on uh, to say some other things. And so I want to start sort of what may seem like an odd place. I'm going to start in chapter 5, verse 8, because here is one of those places where Paul offers a kind of, again, another metaphor besides the taking off and putting on that sort of guides where he's going for most of what we're talking about today. So in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 8, he says, For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. <coughs> live as children of light. Do you hear that again? His announcement of what has happened, now be that. Okay? Once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. It doesn't say try to make yourselves light. Okay? God has made you light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. <laughs> so this notion of light and dark is a powerful image in scripture, um, not just in the book of Ephesians. Uh, Paul uses it other places. Uh, as you know, it's used in the Gospel of John uh, a lot. Um, but here's another way that he's talking about it. Um, in, in Christ you have been made light, so live as children of light. So what's that look like? So now we'll sort of take a quick look back to sort of see the scope of some of the areas of, his of everyday life that this touches on. Um, because one of the challenges for Paul, and one of the reasons why he's uh, engaging in this conversation about how to live daily life is because it, it might have been possible that in his day when he went around announcing that God has done this new thing, then you might have just, people might have just thought then all the old ways of uh, all the Jewish uh, worries about righteousness and holiness and all that stuff just might have gone out the window because and so maybe it might have led, uh, led to some people uh, to be sort of you know libertines in the sense of just thinking they can do whatever they want and, and so Paul's trying to say no uh, you are a new humanity um, but that still means that you're, you're to live into that. This has implications for how you live. And so he's trying in his day to spell out what some of those might be. And so back in chapter 4, one of the areas that he talks about um, is, is the way that we actually, use, we actually speak to each other. That's pretty everyday, right? That's not theoretical. Um, it's not like someday you might have to think about what you'll do in a situation where you actually have to talk to somebody. No, I mean, that's pretty much everyday stuff, right? Um, and so, how do we use our speech? Well, he says you're going to use your speech to build people up, to edify them, to build them up. And here he's leaning back to that metaphor earlier in the book where he talks about the church as, as the temple, as a building. And so it's the same kind of word, to build somebody up rather than tearing them down. And again, it sounds so simple. I mean, a lot of us have heard that all our lives, but for him, again, this is not just moralism. It's not just, you know, it's not just your mother telling you if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> this is part of being children of light. That God has given us the gift of speech. And the question, what is it used for if you're a, ch if you're a child of the light? Well, it's used to build people up. And that includes, as he says, um, in verse, now we're back in verse 25 of chapter 4. We're skipping around a little bit, so you'll have to be agile today. So then putting away falsehood, there's one thing you can do with your speech, right? Speak falsely. Put away falsehood. Let us also speak the truth to our neighbors. Why? Because we are members of one another. Okay, we're members of one another. 
Be angry, but do not sin. Now, probably better translated, when you get angry, do not sin. It's not like commanding you to be angry. Like, be angry. Right? But the assumption is that anger is a God-given emotion. Right? Uh, and in itself is not bad. But it can go bad quickly. Right? It, it's one of the more potentially dangerous emotions, particularly if we give it free reign. And so if you're a child of the light, um, you have to know that anger has a place. Um, yeah, I mean, there are things you should be angry about. But you have to be careful uh, because you know, and I know, uh, that you can nurse anger, right? You can nurse anger, and then it becomes things that uh, he's going to talk about uh, in verse 31. <coughs> Put away from you, and here's things that here's things that anger can turn into. Put away from you all bitterness, wrath, anger, different kind, wrangling. Been wrangling lately. <laughs> Slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted. <laughs> forgiving. So yeah, there's a, there's a place for anger in the human life. There's a place for anger in the Christian life. But he says, you know, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Right? Which is really good advice. Really hard to do. Right? Really hard to do. Uh, some of you who had uh, marriage counseling uh, a year or two ago um, might have been given that wise advice, right? Um, that in your marriage and in your family, in your dealings with your children, not to let the sun go down your anger, to try to make peace with each other. Um, and sometimes it doesn't happen, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's probably wise, right? Because if, if not, then things can often go underground and they begin to turn into bitterness and anger and malice and slander and all those other lovely things. But keep noticing that what Paul's talking about here, he's not just moralizing. All of this is grounded in this. Given this amazing thing that God has done in Jesus, given who God has made us, therefore be children of light. Right, this is not a new burden, a new moralism. This is about trying to live into our new identity. And it's not going to be easy. Um, I'm, I'm sort of attached to my old humanity. Right? And so, but Paul's trying to say, Paul's not saying, will yourself into this. He's saying that, no, God's made you this, and so be open to the Spirit's work to transform you, to continue to make you who you already are. That's kind of, it requires a different way of thinking. So that's one of the places.
Uh, the second place that Paul talks about, uh, beginning um, in verse 3 of chapter 5, has to do with uh, the contemporary sexuality of his day. Um, and most scholars think that it was because Ephesus and other uh, places that this letter likely went were very cosmopolitan places with lots of these uh, pretty esoteric mystery religions, many of which had uh, what we would call a sort of cultic prostitution as part of them. Uh, there was uh, that somehow this was understood to be the highest religious experience possible. And, um, and you can hear people say that today, right? Um, I mean, human sexuality is a powerful human drive, and it makes possible powerful human experiences. This is absolutely true. But you can exalt it to the level of a form of idolatry. And it's possible that some people, uh, the Gentiles that this gospel is going to, uh, might have thought that this might be part of the new humanity, and Paul's trying to say, no, it's not. Okay, this is not it. And so he says, you know, what does he say there? <clears throat> Fornication and impurity of any kind, or greed, I mean, it's broader than this, right? Must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among those whom God is making holy. Then he goes off to talk about talk again. Okay. Vulgar talk. But instead that there be thanksgiving. Another thing what you do with your speech. You can offer thanksgiving. And so that's another area of human life where this new humanity actually gets played out. But now I'd like to skip. Well, I do want to say one other thing. Um, he also goes to talks about um, drunkenness when he gets to uh, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's another thing we do with our speech. I mean, sometimes when people get drunk, they do go to singing. Um, they don't normally remember what they sang, but other people do. And, um, yeah. yeah, it's often one of those embarrassing things. So, Paul wants you to be filled with not the spirits, but the spirit. <laughs> right? Um, and again, he's not, I mean, there's no indication here that uh, Paul is commanding teetotaling. Um, but he does think that um, somehow losing a sense of who you are is not appropriate to the children of the light, the new humanity. Right? Uh, that this is not becoming of the children of light. But again, it's not just don't do this, but it's this 
you know, give yourself to this beautiful thing of singing, and here he lists three things, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we don't know exactly what he's talking about. We know the psalms. That was the prayer book of the church very early on, just like it was the prayer book of the Jews. Uh, hymns, we think we may, he may have given us, give us one here uh, that follows. Um, actually came before, back in verse 14. Um, he says, For everything becomes visible, is light. Therefore it says, and here he quotes this, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I think that's likely an early song, right? An early song that they sung. I mean, it's really beautiful. This goes back to this metaphor of children of light. Sleeper, awake. And notice, and you know in Scripture, sleeper uh, is not just one who's not being watchful, although it has a kind of double meaning. It's someone who's not being watchful, not attentive. So, you know, sleepwalking through life, so to speak, right? You can be asleep, and you can be awake. Um, that's a common teaching in Jesus. So there's that notion of sleep. But sleep also is a metaphor for death, too, right? Um, those who are asleep in Christ, right? They're dead, but they're asleep. So, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's uh, a beautiful early hymn. And then, spiritual songs uh, were likely... Uh, possibly more spontaneous kinds of things that grew up in, in worship. Um, Paul talks about if you have you know, a word or a song. So it's possible that people um, just in any kind of setting might have a song, right? And there was a, a place for that. But again, a different way of using your voice, using speech, uh, this gift of, of music. And we know music is powerful. Um, and it is part of... Um, it's part of a lot of the ways that many of us have been shaped. We've mentioned this a number of times in here. Uh, one, of the, one of the beautiful gifts of the Wesleyan tradition are all these Wesley hymns, um, which just aren't beautiful music, but they're beautiful texts, beautiful theology. And most of you, uh, myself included, for good and probably occasionally ill, have learned most of our theology through songs and hymns we've sung all our lives. Uh, some of the most beautiful theology you know that's in your bones, you don't even know you have it, you've learned from songs. And there might be a couple things that you've learned that you would have been better not to have learned. Um, but that's okay too. I mean, every song can't be perfect. Um, but it's, it's just true. And, and why is that? Because it just resonates with us. Um, when you put words to music, I mean, the, the great uh, 4th and 5th century uh, theologian Augustine uh, once said, uh, the one who sings once prays twice. And what he meant by that is that song just stays with you, and you keep sort of praying it, even when you're just humming it. And um, it's kind of a beautiful idea. And uh, it's easy to in an age where music and song is primarily entertainment, it's easy to forget that it has a serious place in the Christian life. Uh, that when we sing together, uh, that's a weird thing. Right? It's a weird thing. 
I think we often don't remember this. I mean, where else in American culture do you sing with people that you don't know? The national anthem and a really big birthday party with where people that you might not know. But other than that, there's not a lot of places we sing. Sometimes concerts. Uh, you go to a concert. Most of us aren't uh, concert goers. Not the kind of concerts I'm thinking of. Uh, where you're encouraged, you're not encouraged to sing along at the, the orchestra, uh, generally. Um, but it's a kind of odd thing, right? It, it, there's, a, there's a kind of intimacy to singing. There's a kind of vulnerability uh, to singing with each other. And, um, but it's a powerful experience. And Paul is saying, you know, the children of light, we, we do this, but we sing certain kinds of things that are edifying. Okay? They're edifying. They, they build us up. But I want to focus, I was going to say most of my time, the rest of my time, on what is often understood to be, um, depending on who you are, how you think of it, uh, either the most difficult, most perplexing, most um, vexing part of Ephesians, and that's the so-called household codes that begin at verse uh, 21 of chapter 5. And he's going to address uh, sort of three groups of people, husbands and wives, uh, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And what's been problematic for lots of people about this over the years, uh, from pretty early on, is that it doesn't seem like it fits very well for at least initially, in your first reading, with what a lot of Paul seems to have said so far about the new humanity. Um, because in this echoing of the new humanity, the breaking down of the dividing walls, um, it looks like Paul has, and I think there's no way of denying it, Paul has adopted a lot, what looks like the form of a lot of conventional morality of his day when it comes to role responsibility. Um, because every Greek-speaking area, including Jewish Greeks, Hellenic Jews, um, had these kinds of household codes. And so Paul is borrowing the form of that. <clears throat> And the, mo the most important thing to see is that he's also, he's not just adopting it, he's adapting it. He's changing it in some important ways that are easy to miss unless you know what the convention was of the day. Okay, It's a little bit like um, what we call the lex talionis in the Old Testament, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Um, I mean, that that was, an, that was a wider spread moral convention, but it was an important convention. And, the, and the, sir, the problem was it became later something that it was never intended to be. It was intended to limit vengeance, to put a curb on it. It was not to authorize or justify it. It was to put a limit on it because the temptation was and not, not the temptation, what actually happened in the ancient day, and happens still today, right? All you have to do is open the paper, is 
if someone kills somebody in your family, you go kill two people in their family. It's never enough just to kill one. It has to be more. And there's this spiral of violence. And so the whole point of the Lex Talionis was to stop the spiral of violence. It was not to authorize it. It was to limit it. And then, of course, for Christians, Jesus is going to say, as you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, what? Turn the other yeah, I mean, and then Paul's going to say similar thing in Romans 12, right? Don't repay evil for evil, right? Vengeance belongs to God, right? And so... But again, that doesn't make any sense unless you know what came before. And unless you know what Paul, the, the context in which Paul's speaking, and it's easy to think he's only adopting conventional Greek wisdom. I mean, you go back to Aristotle, he has household codes. People do that. And it was, but it was rooted, what's important here. Here's some of the differences. Uh, in the ancient Greeks, it was, it was rooted in the natural order. Okay. And so the reason wives were supposed to obey their husbands because husbands in the natural order of things were made to rule and women to serve. For Aristotle, women weren't even fully human. Sorry. I'm just saying, it's, it's, it's the truth. They were largely property as they were in the ancient world, okay? Uh, same thing goes with children. Children are not moral agents. Okay, they weren't old enough to be. And so they had to obey. And slaves were property, absolutely property, and were not fully human beings. They, they were made, they were subhuman, and so they, but their role, they were, that's their role in the world. And so you have, you have to know that. Um, and so we'll come back to this when we go through, but it's important to know this is, and so it's easy to sort of look, the form of this is the household code, but Paul's going to put a twist on it, just as everything that comes after chapter 3 is rooted in what Christ has done. Everything that happens in this household code takes its cue from Jesus, not from the natural order. And that's very different. And we'll see the difference it makes. And it's true. We might want to say, does it get us all the way to the new humanity? No, but that's probably, we have to be fair to Paul. I mean, Jesus didn't plop down a brand new way of living in relationships and families and societies and just said, everything goes away, brand new, start now. But what Paul offers does, does. I think, if we're fair to him, um, does have some important nudges towards new humanity that continues to, to bear fruit over time. Uh, and that's important because these household codes have been, using, been used for mischief. That's too light a word, right? For evil, to subject people. This was the primary passage used to justify slavery, okay? 
And so we have to be honest about that. Um, but I think if we hear what Paul says and understand that it was nudging them way beyond and for different reasons, that he's not just baptizing the moral codes of his day, then we can ask ourselves, okay, um, then maybe, well, we'll see what follows from that when we get there. But let's, let's take the, because we want to make, give it at least a little time to each of these three conversations and see how they're different um, than what the, what they normally be. The first thing to notice in all three situations is the first person addressed as a moral agent is someone who in the ancient world was not a moral agent. Right? So in each case, Paul begins with wives, children, and slaves and addresses them as moral agents. They were not moral agents in Paul's day. That is radical. Okay? So the first thing he says, the first thing he says, 21, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Be subject to one another. So the first thing he doesn't say is somebody be subject to somebody else. First thing he says is be subject to each other. So there's mutual submission here. That's the first thing that he says. And that covers the whole rest that follows. In fact, the best manuscript we have of verse 22 doesn't even have the word subject in it anymore. It's just assumed. Be subject to one another. Wives to husbands is actually what it says. That's one side of being subject to one another. Then he's going to talk about how husbands are subject to wives. So there's this mutual subjection. That, no one has saw that anywhere in the ancient household tables. Okay? So although it looks like the form of the ancient household table, the content is very, very different. So wives be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Now, again, the content is everything. Right? The husband is head of the wife just as Christ is head of the church. Well, how is Christ the head of the church? As a dictatorial ruler? As an authoritarian master who says, jump, and you say, how high? No. He gave himself for the church. He gave himself for the church. He sacrificed himself for the church. The church is his bride. I mean, he gave everything for. So, you just can't take the word head there and fill it with whatever content you want. Paul is very clear that the, the husband is head in the way that Christ is head, in this self-giving way, not in any kind of authoritarian dictatorial way. 
case you couldn't pick that up by that part, he's going to address husbands now. But the important thing is that, again, I can't say this, stress this enough, um, by addressing wives as subjects, their submission now becomes voluntary. It's something they choose to do rather than something that's demanded of them by their husbands. It's mutual submission. Right. That's a very different thing. Okay. That's a very different thing when you offer it. It goes back to that passage where Jesus, no, the passage where Jesus says, and you've heard it said, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, and we talked about what follows from that. Right? Turn the other cheek. What's one of those other examples? If someone makes you go one mile, go a second mile. We talked about the historical context of that. Right? The Roman soldier had authority to make you carry his pack one mile. You go the second mile. Why? Because in the second mile, you're a moral agent. Right? You're a human being. You get to choose to do that. And you get to show the other person that you're a person. So here, the wife gets to submit. Right? But she's doing it voluntarily, not because demanded of her by her husband. She's not just, no, she doesn't, doesn't just say, you know, obeys, it's submit, it's mutual submission. Wives, husbands, love your wives. This is, this is gonna, the chorus, like four times Paul's gonna say the word love, right? This is what, this is what controls. Husband, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. <coughs> in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. That's pretty powerful. He who loves his wife loves himself. You're one flesh. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will have become one flesh. That's this great mystery. And I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Do you think he could say that any more times? He must have thought we wouldn't get it the first time, husbands. Right? Wives know you have to tell your husband more than once for them to get something. <laughs> Paul must have picked up on that. So I hope, just, just even in that brief glimpse, Paul is doing some, he's nudging this in a different way. This is not just conventional moralism. <coughs> Go to children. Now you have to remember, uh, children were considered to be moral agents either. Children obey your parents in the Lord. Well, they, they had good reason to because both in uh, Jewish life and in the Greco-Roman world, the father had the authority to have his child be put to death for disobedience. Okay? You have to know that's the context. Okay? You could be put to death. And it happened. Not to say there wasn't any tenderness in that culture. 
but you could be put to death. Right? This is also Old Testament law. Okay. So children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and you may have live long on the earth. But again, they're being addressed as agents to do this willfully, not just out of the fear for your life. And then notice what is said to fathers who are the ones who had the power of life and death. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's pretty easy to provoke your children to anger, I've found. <laughs> you may have found that too. You want to say, I was provoked first. Right? It's easy for children to provoke their parents to anger. But notice here, I mean, Paul is saying, right, don't do that. Right? Don't do that. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So their formation should be about becoming children of light and living out of that, not out of the fear of you. You see the difference? He's nudging this in a different direction from the sort of natural moral codes. Slaves, last pair. Slaves. Slaves are being addressed as moral agents. That's, no one had seen that. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as you, as you obey Christ. Not only being watched in an order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So you're first of all a slave to Christ. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not only to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. Now hear this. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven. And with him, there is no partiality. That is a theological, um, I want to say grenade. It sounds a little violent, but that's what it is. Right? In Aristotle's day, there could be no friendship among master and slave. There could be no justice between master and slave because there was no equality. They're not on the same level, so there can be no relationship other than master and slave. Paul is saying, look, you have the same master, and that master shows no partiality. Did slavery last way too long after this? Yes, it did. But the seeds for its undermining were right here. And it's not surprising that this text also was used to undermine slavery, although it is also used to validate it. So it's, it's moving in the right direction, and we could wish it would have worked faster. But it's not fair to Ephesians or to Paul to say, in this part of Ephesians, he's just recycling conventional wisdom from his day. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is all rooted in this, in what God has done in Jesus. 
and in trying to be children of light. I mean, this is radical. Paul is saying being a child of light goes all the way down into what feels like your most natural, normal human relationships. That all you need is just to look at nature. This is the way God, this is the way we're made. And Paul's saying, no. The way you, you are made new in Christ, and that changes everything. Everything down to the way you treat your spouse, your child, and that day, your slave. So, but it's rooted in this, not in moralism. And that's a lot more radical than it looks on the surface. And it certainly can't be used, uh, or shouldn't be used, um, to subject other people, which is unfortunately what it has been used for. But that's exactly the opposite of what it was intended for. It was for mutual submission all around. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you have made us a new humanity and we confess that we're still struggling to make us, uh, to be what you've made us. And so we, we ask that by your spirit um, that we would continue to be open to your transforming work in our lives. We pray that we would have a spirit of mutual submission in our relationships, that we would understand your self-giving nature that we see most beautifully expressed uh, in Jesus. Um, that that would be our model, that would be our desire to live in a, such a way uh, that we give ourselves to one another uh, to build each other up so that we all might come to maturity in Christ. And so we, we give you thanks uh, for your scripture. We give you thanks for the word that challenges us even thousands of years later. May you continue to speak through it. May it speak to our hearts uh, this day and in the days ahead as we seek to be the people, uh, your church, this foretaste uh, of the new humanity. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.